0: Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can click the like or subscribe button. You can also leave me a review wherever you listen to this podcast. So I've got an exciting show for everybody today and I was originally going to talk about a company called Veristem but then we got so much news coming out in the last couple weeks that I'm going to do a couple touch points on a variety of different companies and then finish up by talking about Nash because we got some updates from two companies in the space and I thought it would be a good opportunity to bring us up to date with some of the companies that I like and uh, what we can look forward to in the next little while and in the Nash space that means like up to six months or a year. Having said that I do want to thank everybody for all the support. I've been getting a ton of emails and direct messages lately and it's been a little bit overwhelming so I want to assure everybody that if you've emailed me and I haven't gotten back to you it's, uh, it's not because I haven't read it, it's just because I've been overwhelmed, really. And to make everybody aware, you know, I do have a, a day job, so this is really um, time that I volunteer to produce these videos and um, put out that content. But uh, thanks, everybody, for all the emails and the support. I do appreciate it. And for those of you who are requesting that I do an episode on a certain company, uh, I've been getting too many requests to really do them all. But I think how I'm going to do things moving forward is that And I haven't been advertising this really ever because I'm not really looking to uh, profit off this necessarily. But in order to be able to prioritize different requests, uh, there is a link below in the description of every episode for a tip jar. So if anybody wants me to take a serious look at a company, I'm going to prioritize people who have donated to the show so we can keep this train moving. Another thing people have been asking me about are different ways that they can contribute. So I'm also going to put a link for a referral to a broker that I use called Tastyworks. So if anybody's looking for a broker that has pretty much all the functionality that you need, but not as intense as something like Thinkorswim, Tastyworks is pretty good. They've done really well for me. So if you're interested in a, in a broker that I use, it is Tastyworks and my referral link is below. They allow you to do short selling, trade options, do futures trading as well. So I think it's a pretty good overall broker. So you can use that link and that'll that'll help out the show as well. Having said that, let's get into the meat of the show. And, you know, I got kind of a new setup going on now. I was Uh, gifted a camera, so I'm kind of getting used to this new setup, and I'm also using a desktop computer that I've um, repurposed, so things are gonna be a little bit different, but I think it's gonna be overall a big improvement to the show, so let me know what you think about that. But to get into it, the first thing I wanted to talk about is Stemline, and Stemline, I did a video on about a month ago, and we heard that the Menarini Group is going to acquire Stemline Therapeutics in a transaction valued up to $677 million. So the market cap of Stemline, I think was in the 200s when I did my video and I said they were a buy then. And I was willing to hold them for quite a while because I think the commercial development of Elzonris was going to be positive and they were going to see increases in revenue from that and their other programs. But it looks like the Menorini Group also saw that and decided to acquire them. So the details of the deal are here. I'm reading from their press release. Stemline shareholders will be offered a total potential consideration of $12.50 per share, consisting of an upfront payment of $11.50 in cash and one non-tradable contingent value right that will entitle each holder to an additional $1 in cash per share upon completion of the first sale of El Zonris in any EU5 country after European Commission approval. So I had somebody ask me about this on StockTwits, and I went ahead and sold all my shares. I think I sold them at 1202. I don't think they're going to have any issues getting approval in the EU, but for me, having that money right now is worth it rather than waiting for the approval, and then for them to actually make that first sale, which would probably come later this year, early next year. Or so, And I think you could have even gotten them at like 12, 20 something. So for me, it was just worth selling to get that cash up front. So that's Stemline, good news for us. And uh, congratulations to everybody who went ahead and bought Stemline and made some money off that guy. So the next company I wanted to talk about is TG Therapeutics. And I mentioned them in passing with my video on Trillium because they have an asset that is an anti-CD47 antibody as well. And I didn't dive too deeply into them because I was strictly trying to analyze the potential of their anti-CD4 asset in comparison to Trillium. But they have a number of different assets and a number of different programs. And I think they're a good company to get into deeply when I talk about Veristem next week, because they're also trying to develop these products in a variety of different non-Hodgkin lymphoma diseases. So I'm going to talk in detail with my next video, but what we heard in the last couple of weeks is that the phase three unity CLL trial evaluating the combination of imbralisib plus umblituximab compared to abinutuzumab plus chlorambucil in patients with previously untreated and relapsed refractory chronic lymphocytic leukemia met its primary endpoint demonstrating a statistically significant improvement in progression-free survival. And the p-value was mega significant so this pretty much doubled the value of tgtx after this news came out the company had hit some stumbling blocks with some original concerns around safety and they had some failures early on but in this study here the efficacy was overwhelmingly positive so it's good to see for the company and they actually might have some more potential benefit moving forward there's a phase three readout for multiple sclerosis due in the second half of 2020 so I'm gonna dive deeper into them and I think they're a good complement to Veristem because their therapy here is a PI3K inhibitor of one of the subunits and Veristem also has one of those candidates as well. So gonna talk about them in more detail, but I wanted to mention them because I did talk about them previously in relation to Trillium Therapeutics. The next company I wanna talk about is Cassava Sciences and they now have a market cap of only $52 million and the stock dropped i think around seven or eight dollars on friday on the news that the top line results from a phase 2b study of pti-125 in alzheimer's disease did not meet the primary endpoint and not only did it not meet the primary endpoint with regards to the biomarkers but they didn't mention anything on the cognition secondary endpoints that i thought were the most exciting thing of this molecule so they originally, late last year, announced some data in their Phase 2a saying that PTI-125 had a beneficial effects on biomarkers associated with Alzheimer's disease in a smaller trial of Alzheimer's patients. And then they wanted to follow that up with a Phase 2b study to confirm the Phase 2a biomarker data and also show some cognition readouts. So we were going to actually see if this drug not only had an effect on biomarkers, but also on the behavioral aspects of Alzheimer's disease, which are the most important. The press release reads here that the pre-specified primary endpoint was a statistically significant effect of PTI-125 versus placebo on cerebrospinal fluid levels of tau protein and other biomarker assessments from baseline to day 28. PTI-125 significantly reduced a secondary endpoint, CSF levels of IL-1-beta, A core biomarker of neuroinflammation from baseline to day 28, the drug was safe and well tolerated. So only seeing a difference in one biomarker of neuroinflammation is a huge failure for them. There were multiple different biomarkers they were going to look at, so you would expect that doing another trial would see that effect translate into all the other different biomarkers that they had looked at in that phase 2a. The press release also goes on to say that a post-hoc analysis of biomarker data revealed high variability in levels of CSF biomarkers over 28 days. For example, placebo-treated patients recorded changes in levels of CSF tau and phospho tau ranging from negative 54% to positive 34% and negative 49% to positive 253% respectively from baseline to day 28. The biomarker analysis was conducted by an outside lab. So this makes the interpretation very difficult as well, especially when you're comparing drug-treated versus placebo. When the variability is as crazy as I just mentioned there, it makes it very difficult to get any good conclusion from that data. So they mentioned that the drug effects of PTI-125, if any, may have been masked in this study by high variability in levels of biomarkers of disease. In the months ahead, the company plans to reanalyze the CSF biomarkers from all study participants. So because the variability is so crazy, we don't really know if the drug has an effect or not. It's so much easier to just kill a project if there is a clear non-effect of the drug, but because here there's so much variability, we don't really know what to do moving forward. Now the company preemptively launched an open label uh, year long study, which I think is a good move because really the 28 day thing, I think is just way too short to see any profound effects of this drug it clearly looks like the phase 2a was kind of a fluke but because they're doing this year-long open label study we'll get to see really if this drug has any kind of effect because like i mentioned in my cassava video most alzheimer's trials go out to like a year or at least half a year before they can actually evaluate the effects and see a difference in cognition so i think that's a good move by cassava Uh, i'm obviously down i think 50% on my position, but I only bought 50 shares or so. So it wasn't a huge deal for me that this wasn't a success. The company mentioned in their Q1 results that they have $25.6 million in cash and that they expect to use only $5 million in the full year 2020. So if we do a bit of uh, calculation here, it looks like they're gonna have enough cash probably until the end of 2021. But I assume before the end of that, they're going to have to raise to some capacity. The results for this year long open label study probably aren't gonna come out until the middle of 2021, I would think. But they mentioned, and I have it quoted down here, that the study was 20% enrolled in March of 2020. So yeah, we, we have to kind of do some uh, creative assumptions on how long it's gonna take before we get those results but I don't expect that a reanalysis of the CSF biomarkers in this phase 2b study are going to lead to anything beneficial. So as it stands, I'm probably going to sell the shares that I have, and then I'll look to reinvest maybe in early 2021 and kind of put this company on the back burner from there. But it's, uh, it's unfortunate for Alzheimer's patients. It would have been nice to see a, a real positive outlook here, but uh, unfortunately it didn't work out. The next company I wanted to talk about, and this one we also got news of on May 15th, was Sorrento Therapeutics, ticker symbol SRNE. And they jumped, I think, 125% on Friday on the news that they developed a cure for COVID-19. And I love reading these headlines because they're so cinematic in their uh, delivery and their prose. But as we know, the devil is in the details. And with this one, it's no different. The management seems very hyperbolic in their rhetoric. And I think that just fuels the journalists to really blow stories out of proportion to what they're really valued at. So the company's press release announced that STI 1499, a potent anti-SARS-CoV-2 antibody demonstrates ability to completely inhibit in vitro virus infection in preclinical studies. They mention here that this antibody has demonstrated in preclinical experiments, and that these full results will be submitted to a peer reviewed publication shortly, that there is 100% inhibition of SARS-CoV-2 virus infection in healthy cells after four days of incubation, and that there is specific binding to S1 subunit of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein and a complete blockade of its interaction with ACE2 receptor. So some things to note here is that this is a preclinical study and it is done in vitro. So it's done in human cells, but it's done in a cell culture dish. They were able to show this blockade of virus infection with the treatment of STI 1499. The other thing is that this hasn't even been submitted to a peer reviewed journal. Now I have my reservations about using peer review as some kind of holy grail to show that science is real, but the fact that these guys haven't even gone to publish or submit their research to a peer reviewed publication shows that this is just all hot air and they are not worth this massive increase in market cap that they garnered in the last day. For me, I'm gonna look on them for a short opportunity. They have a pretty big pipeline, so it's gonna take me a little bit of time to kind of look into the details and see whether or not some of their other assets might prop up the value, but for any benefit they've received due to this potential antibody in SARS-CoV-2, I think it's a total joke and just to show some other companies that have also developed antibodies in this area Lilly and AbCellera have js016 which is another neutralizing antibody regeneron and sanofi are looking at a cocktail of antibodies to use to block viral infection and then biogen and vir also have a couple of assets that they're looking at but as people have mentioned it looks like a cocktail of antibodies is probably going to be the best way to go because as you can imagine, these viruses mutate quite a bit. And if a mutation in the epitope that's been targeted by neutralizing antibody changes, the virus is gonna be able to escape any potential blocking activity that an antibody might have and still be able to cause an effect. So it looks like an antibody cocktail is the best way to go. So it's gonna take some time to develop, but I wanted to bring this up because it was just such a, such a funny thing to read about on Friday. But that's Sorrento Therapeutics right in my backyard down here in San Diego. All right. The other stuff that we heard about is uh, some updates and abstracts from ASCO 2020. So the abstracts were released earlier this week. And two notable companies that I wanted to talk about are Trillium Therapeutics and Marker Therapeutics. We also got an update from Allogene. But for the purposes of this video, I just want to talk about Trillium and Marker with regards to the ASCO um, abstracts. And we still yet to see the posters so let's uh let's keep in mind that there's going to probably be more data we're going to see a little bit more insight once we see the actual poster and those are going to be released on may 29th to the 30th i believe of may so with trillium the nuggets that i pulled from this and they, they have a market cap right now 480 million they dipped a little bit on this news but i think it wasn't really merited the poster here read Preliminary biomarker data revealed approximately 60% receptor occupancy at the end of the first infusion of 2 mg per kilogram and more sustained 24 hour receptor occupancy at 1 and 2 mg per kilogram versus the doses that were equal or less than 0.8 mg per kilogram. To date, one patient with stage 4 non GCB DLBCL with five prior therapies initially achieved a partial response by week 8. And complete response by week 36 with response ongoing. So, this is an update to Trillium's 622 product and not their 661 product. And the differences are in the human antibody FC region that they used for this. For me, this is just very preliminary data that doesn't really give us a ton of stuff here. The important thing that I think to take away here is that with their 2 milligram per kilogram dose, they achieved only 60% receptor occupancy. And what that means to me is that they can still go higher with the dose and they're likely to see a greater efficacy because the receptor occupancy of this antibody is what really leads to that efficacy in these different lymphoma cancers. So that's number one. That's a good thing because I think the side effects also at this dose are relatively mild. So there's more room for them to go up in dose to get that greater efficacy, which will only be benefit to the company. They also mentioned that there is a partial response that led to a complete response. So that's a good thing. They're still the only company with an anti-CD4 antibody that has seen a complete response in a monotherapy. So that's a good thing. I think the dip in the stock, it's uh, more noise than anything. So for me, I don't think this is anything to be concerned about. And we're still going to look forward to the updates that they're going to show in mid-2020. Moving on. Let's talk about marker therapeutics, and I haven't touched on them for a while because they ran into some issues with their suppliers of different material when it came to their T-cell therapy. So they originally did an update on pancreatic cancer in the middle of last year, and their market cap has since gone down to 107 million. And what they mention here in their poster is that of the 13 patients treated with their T-cell therapy, as well as with a uh, traditional drug, eight maintained cancer control for longer than expected compared to historical controls. So that doesn't really mean much. They only were able to do a single arm trial and this drug was also treated in concordance with another drug as well. So for us to really isolate the effects of just their T cell therapy is kind of difficult. Then they mentioned that with administration of T cells, three of these eight patients had partial responses and one patient had a radiographic complete response per resist. So the one complete response is pretty important because when I looked at the previous trials, it looks like the number of complete responses are relatively low. So if they can see maybe another complete response, then I think we have something here, but it's tough to know right now if that complete response is just a fluke or not. But otherwise, it looks like this update in data is showing pretty much the same thing that we saw last year. And I mentioned that in a video, I think it was in um, July or August that I published it, but Where we're at with Marker right now is they have to provide some safety information to the FDA, but because of the COVID stuff, they've been running into some issues and the one supplier they were going to use is no longer open during this COVID crisis. So for them, it's going to be difficult to reach the timelines that they had set out from the outset. They mentioned in their latest earnings report that they have cash and cash equivalents of 40.3 million dollars and they believe that this amount of cash will fund its operating expenses and capex requirements into the second quarter of 2021 now i think given the COVID situation and the issues with their suppliers they are likely going to have to raise money before we see any data and for that reason i'm thinking of just selling all of my stock and i only have like 30 shares or so but I think for them, it's only going to be downside until we can see more data on the safety and then maybe it's worth picking them up again. But unfortunately for them, uh, with the whole situation going on right now, it's going to be difficult. So that's ASCO 2020. I did want to mention also, I put a chart here from the Trillium corporate presentation just to show that the monotherapies of anti-CD47 antibodies are not really that good usually. I'm seeing here the 47 antibody has a 5% overall response rate in solid tumors and lymphomas, and a 10% overall response rate in AML and MDS. The ALX Oncology anti-CD47 had a 0% overall response rate in solid tumors, and then some others were just discontinued due to lack of efficacy. So the fact that we're seeing a complete response I think is a good thing, and just note that this is interim data and that they're still trying to find that maximum tolerated dose. And that's likely what's gonna be used in future trials. So just wanted to make a note of that uh, before we move on. But that's Trillium and that is Marker. All right, so let's talk about NASH. And to give a bit of a background on NASH, the abbreviation stands for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. And doctors have really noticed NASH as a point at which you can treat liver disease before it ends up becoming liver cirrhosis, where the outcome there is the requirement for a liver transplant. So the progression of liver disease, as it's called, kind of goes from NAFLD, which is just fatty liver disease. So seemingly you have a bad diet and a lot of that fat that you've intaken uh, goes to your liver cells. And then you start to see liver cells that start to have these droplets of fat in them. That's how it looks histologically. And what happens from there is that the fatty liver cells then end up fibrotic. So for some reason, the fatty liver that occurs ends up turning on a fibrotic program such that extracellular matrix proteins get deposited in the liver, and this ends up replacing hepatocytes, which are liver cells. So you start to see liver cell death along with deposition of these dense extracellular matrix proteins and this ends up having a functional effect on the liver. And so the issue with NASH, though, is that a lot of people can live with NAFLD or NASH for years and years and years, and most people don't see any symptoms or any negative outcomes from that, except for a subset of patients that end up moving on to liver cirrhosis, and then they need a liver transplant. So it's a, it's a tough disease, but a lot of companies have taken advantage of this and see an opportunity here where... Patients that are being actively monitored by their doctor for other conditions, say diabetes or something, will also potentially notice them having NASH if they're getting their liver evaluated. So there's a chance here where a doctor can preemptively treat these patients with some kind of drug and help them at the stages of NAFLD or NASH before it might move on forward to liver cirrhosis. And so there's still some questions on how the monitoring is gonna go from a doctor perspective. There's issues in who's gonna pay for these drugs because given there's no symptoms, it's tough to tell whether or not patients are ever gonna be evaluated for NASH until they're at that stage where they need a liver transplant. So there's some tough things with the NASH space right now, but it's not stopped a lot of companies from moving forward with developing their candidate molecules in the space. So before I talk about Genfit and Simabay, Two of the companies that I really liked are Magical Pharmaceuticals and Viking Therapeutics, and the reason for that is they have specific thyroid receptor beta agonist drugs that overall seem to have a good safety profile and also have a pretty profound effect on patients with NAFLD or NASH. Now, there's other companies that are further along in their development process, so they're kind of gonna take the market share quicker than Magical or Viking could, and then a lot of other companies are starting to pop up with candidate molecules that do have a pretty substantial effect. So we're gonna talk about that. But the news that we saw in the last couple of weeks is an update from Genfit and Simabay. So both have a pretty similar market cap now. Uh, Genfit announced that their drug molecule, Elifibrinor, which is a PPAR-alpha-delta co-agonist, And what we learned was that it did not demonstrate statistically significant effect on the primary endpoint of NASH resolution without worsening fibrosis. The response rate in 717 patients enrolled, so this is a phase three study, so they were pretty close to getting to that regulatory hurdle. But the response rate in those patients was 17.2% for patients who received Elifibrinor, 120 milligrams, compared to 14.7% for patients in the placebo arm. On the fibrosis key secondary endpoint, 24.5% of patients who received elafibranor 120 milligrams achieved fibrosis improvement of at least one stage compared to 22.4% in the placebo arm. The other key secondary endpoint related to metabolic parameters did not achieve statistical significance. So I was never really impressed with Genfit's drug here. In phase two, it seemed to have some kind of effect, but it wasn't dramatic enough for me to stand by them for phase three. And then here we see that in a really big trial, that they weren't able to achieve statistical significance. Now, Simon Bay, on the other hand, has a drug molecule called Celadelpar, and it is a PPAR-delta agonist, specifically. So it doesn't agonize the PPAR-alpha subunit, but it actually has a stronger effect than LFibrinor in targeting PPAR-delta. And so Sima Bay had an issue late in 2019 where some safety effects led to them deciding to halt the trial until they could do a detailed analysis. And so what we learned was that an independent expert panel unanimously concluded that there is no clinical, biochemical, or histological evidence of celadelpar-induced liver injury in the Phase two b study. The panel unanimously supports reinitiating clinical development of celadelpar pending approval of the FDA and that Simon Bay plans to re-engage with the FDA as quickly as possible. So it looks like the PPAR, Alpha, or Delta agonists are still kind of on the table, even though there might not be that great an efficacy. And for me, I don't see a point in investing in either of these companies because there are companies that likely have a greater effect in NASH that are further along in the developmental pipeline. But Simon Bay increased substantially on the news because now they do have some chance of getting a therapeutic approved here and actually seeing some Phase 2B study data. So for them, there's some hope, but with Genfit, I don't see how they're going to move forward. It's going to be difficult for them to argue with the FDA that, you know, they should see approval given that they didn't see statistical significance there, but to talk a little bit more broadly on NASH, the slide that I'm showing here has kind of the top candidates, we'll say. Um, and comparing placebo to active molecule and the differences in the effects in NASH. So, the one molecule that's the furthest along is Intercepts Ocaliva, and they finished their phase three. They have an advisory committee meeting coming up on June 9th, so that's going to be interesting to see what they come up with. And, you know, if you see the differences here with placebo and active molecule, it's a difference of about 4%. So, is that really enough? to get insurers to pay for it. I'm not really sure, but the drug has been approved for primary biliary cholangitis already. So it's been out there for a while and they're hoping to repurpose that drug in NASH. So we'll see how that goes. I'm gonna be keeping an eye out on that. Some other companies, Galmed is one I haven't really looked at, but Genfit here, you can see the differences between placebo and active in their phase two, 12% in the placebo compared to 19 in in the active, which isn't that great. And then the company that I like a lot is Madrigal with their Resmeriton drug. And in phase two, they saw a pretty substantial improvement in those that were taking the Nash drug, 24.7% compared to 6.5%. And they're moving forward in their phase three. Now, a study that we saw that actually came out pretty recently was Novo Nordis semaglutide, which is a GLP-1 agonist. And it only has to be given as a shot once weekly and they saw a huge improvement in NASH resolution without worsening fibrosis. We saw here that the active drug got a 58.9% response as compared to 17.2% in the placebo. So a massive response here in semaglutide. And now of course, Novo Nordisk is a huge company. They have a ton of diabetes assets. So for me, I don't know if it's worth investing in them at this point, but they, uh, they definitely have a pretty profound molecule here. And then the last one here is a pioglitazone molecule from poxil. And pioglitazone is a, kind of a controversial drug, I suppose. There's a ton of side effects associated with it, but they're trying to repurpose a related molecule to pioglitazone that might just target a certain subunit and not have the negative effects associated with PPAR gamma agonism which leads to things like weight gain and water retention that are pretty deleterious. But I have the market caps listed down here. So Intercept has uh, one of the most generous market caps given that they have the highest likelihood of getting to market at 2.8 billion. That's followed by a Magical at $1.8 billion. And that's because they have you know, a pretty profound effect here compared to Intercept, even though they're still in the middle of doing their phase three trials. So Novo Nordisk, because of all their other assets that have been commercialized for a while, have a market cap of $150 billion. So for me, it's going to be tough to, to see an investment in them for that reason. And then Viking, which is the other company that I like, is $500 million market cap, and we'll talk about them in, in the next slide. I uh, stole this image from Twitter. It is a graph from Evercore ISI that shows the wild variety of NASH candidates that are out there and... It's kind of a scatter graph that shows the differences in the target and then how close they are to actually getting their drug approved. So we see here that Okaleva from Intercept is the closest one, followed by Elifibrinor, but because of that failure, they're definitely kicked out. And then followed by that is Madrigal with MGL1396 or Resmitiram, and they're pretty close because they're they're in the middle of phase three right now. And then we see all of these other candidates. and. Whether one is better than the other, you know, I still like Viking, but for me, you know, semaglutide is probably going to develop theirs quicker. And I don't know if Vikings going to be able to catch up and achieve much of a dominant place in the market. Okay, so in terms of what we can look forward to in the next little while, because there's so many different companies in Nash right now, I've kind of just focused on a couple of them, which is Viking and Madrigal. So the graph that I'm showing here is a chart from SVP Lyrink. And there's some interesting stats that they put here. They put that there's going to be an estimated revenue of 15 to $40 billion by 2030. So they're convinced, and a lot of people are convinced, that this is actually going to be a pretty big space and that there is going to be a way that, that payers will pay for it and that doctors are going to be able to uh, diagnose for NASH and things like that. But currently there's 80 clinical trials with 48 unique modes of action across clinical studies. There's 55 companies with a drug in development for Nash and it's estimated that there's going to be 27 million people that have Nash in the United States by 2030. So, you know, it's still a risk, but there's a chance that this could actually be a pretty big home run. So the way I've decided to play it, I took positions in Madrigal and Viking a long time ago and I'm, I made some money on Madrigal, not so much in Viking. And the reason for that is Viking has gone very slow in their development process. As of Q1 of 2020, Viking had $270 million in cash, and they burn around $10 million per quarter. They're still in the middle of enrollment of their phase 2B trial in biopsy confirmed NASH, so their lead candidate has only been tested in NAFLD, and for them, they really need to see an effect in biopsy confirmed NASH in order to move forward in phase 3. So they expect to finish enrollment in this Phase to be in the first half of 2021, so still going to take, you know, quite a while before we see any good data, and the primary outcome is 12-week liver fat data. So for me, I'm not really sure if we're going to see an interim readout maybe at the end of this year or not, so I'm going to hold on reluctantly because they, they've been known to take a really long time in getting their candidate forward, but... That's kind of where we're at with Viking. It seems like they're not going to have to raise money in a while, but if they do ever get to phase three, um, I definitely see them needing to raise. So I'm probably going to try to get out as soon as we see a readout of this phase 2B trial in NASH. Magical, on the other hand, is doing two phase three trials, one in NAFLD and one in NASH. And they have $408 million in cash as of Q1 in 2020 and they burn around $40 million a quarter. So their run rate is is a little higher than biking, and they're expected to provide readouts at the end of 2021. So Madrigal is much further along. They have been known to actually deliver a little bit quicker, but obviously with data at the end of 2021, it's, uh, it's gonna be a long haul. And I did make some money on Madrigal early on, I think in 2018, but since then I've held on to a handful of shares and my average cost basis I think is like 123 per share. So it's gonna be a long road ahead. The NASH space as a whole has seen a big flood of money and I think that's just because the whole biotech space has been moving up quite a bit and there's been a little bit more excitement around the NASH space surrounding this uh, Intercept Advisory Committee as well as that semaglutide positive readout that we saw. So. You know, depending on how things go with the advisory committee, it could be a catalyst to see some increases in Viking and Madrigal. But, you know, because the data readout from both of these companies is going to be quite a while from now, I assume there's going to be a lot of volatility in the stock. So I'm going to hold on and take the news as it comes. But that's the Nash base as a whole. Um, the next things we want to look forward to is uh, the posters from ASCO that are going to be released on May 29th to the 31st. And we're probably gonna see some updates from marker, Trillium, as well as allergene, like I mentioned. The other things to look out for are more COVID headlines. A lot of states have now opened up and I assume we're probably gonna see some increases in flare ups or clusters that have developed. But given there's been such a profound effect on the economy, I have a tough time believing that the citizens are gonna just accept another lockdown. Now, what that's going to look like is kind of just chaos because we're going to see these wild protests and things like that. But I think keeping an eye on the headlines for either that or any kind of positive movement in a vaccine or treatment could also move the market quite a bit. But the biotech sector has seen quite a positive boom from the last little while. And to do a quick portfolio wrap up, the only moves I made in the last uh, two weeks was that I sold Stemline at $12.02. So it made a nice profit there of 126%, not to brag. But overall, I'm 8% on the year. And what that means is that I'm beating the Dow Jones as well as the SPX 500. So you love to see that. I am still lagging the NASDAQ, the IBB, as well as the XBI. But the IBB and the XBI have had a crazy run, which has been pretty wild to watch um, because small caps in general have been hit pretty hard. But with that, I'm going to wrap it up. I want to thank everybody for their attention. I want to thank everybody for the support and the emails. And send me an email at matthewlapard at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at MatthewLepard, where I do kind of my notices of when I make trades. But with that, thanks again, everybody, and we'll see you next time.